Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. It's the start of spring. It's Wednesday, the 1st of September, 2021. Yes, it's hump day, and I'm Justin Roberts. I'll be your host for this evening and for the rest of the week until Alec and the rest of the team gets back from the Biz News Spring Conference, which is taking place in the midst of the Drakensberg at the Champagne Sports Resort. We have got a cracking show lined up for you today. Before I get into that, we will be bringing you some content from the conference from yesterday and what will take place today. That's all to look forward to tomorrow. That'll be Thursday. But first up for today, our partners at the FT, that's the Financial Times of London, will bring you up to speed with their daily news briefing on what's happening all over the globe. Next, I chat to David Shapiro, South Africa's favorite market commentator, just days or hours rather after he's come back from a month-long trip to the United States. David and I chat on a number of topical investment and non-investment related topics, such as what is happening in the U.S., Fed J. Powell's speech and what that means for markets. We talk about some South African counters, such as NASPIS and Process, and he talks about Tencent and other tech-centric related businesses all over the world, as well as a brick-and-mortar South African operator, that being Cashbolt. They came out with great results today. Next on the lineup, my colleague Chris Bateman chats to Henry Kruger, who's the sector head of Kills, on the topic of certificate of need and whether this will lead to the expropriation of private medical practices. After that, Anthony Clark, better known as Small Talk Daily, he delves into education counters Advertech and Stadio. Both of those counters came out with results this week. That was two weeks after a school provider, Caro, came out with results. Anthony would have been on the show then, and that would have been played on the Power Hour. So it's a bit of follow-up to that. He has had a slight change of opinion. He now prefers Stadio over Advertech, and you'll hear why during those 10 minutes. And something different, something unique, but definitely something worth listening to. My colleague in London, Linda van Tolberg, she talks to a young engineering student who wanted to start his own business. He's an entrepreneur of sorts. And what did he do? He was growing hops on a rooftop in Joburg. We know how much the Valleys love their beers. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. In the markets, the JSE All Share Index was slightly lower at 67,000. In the currency markets, the Rand was stronger against all the major currencies. 14 Rand, 44 cents to the greenback, 19 Rand, 87 cents to the pound, and 17 Rand, 7 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,813 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will put you back around 27,500 Rand. Brent crude is flat at $72.40 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency is trading around the 700,000 Rand level. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, September 1st, and this is your FT News Briefing. European officials are drafting a plan to avoid an influx of Afghan refugees. China's leaders have been talking about economic inequality, and that's making the luxury goods industry nervous. Plus, emerging markets have been laggards over the past decade. So far, this year isn't much different. But some investors see hope. There are a lot of stars aligning in the right way, but we're just kind of waiting for that catalyst, and then I think we might be off to the races. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The U.S. pulled its last troops out of Afghanistan yesterday. That brings an end to the 20-year war there. U.S. President Joe Biden has been criticized for the chaotic evacuation and timing of the withdrawal. Yesterday, Biden addressed the nation from the White House and defended the decisions. Let me be clear. Leaving August the 31st, is not due to an arbitrary deadline. It was designed to save American lives. 
Meanwhile, Europe is bracing for a wave of refugees from Afghanistan as people flee the Taliban rule. EU politicians want to avoid a repeat of the Syrian refugee crisis of 2015, so they're drafting a proposal to offer 600 million euros to Afghanistan's neighbors. The funds would help those countries, like Pakistan, host Afghan refugees. The package could even mean cash would go to Iran, which is under international sanctions. China is an incredibly important market for the luxury goods industry. The Chinese uh, shopper is essentially responsible for all the growth in the sector. That's the FT's Leila Aboud. She's our correspondent in Paris, which is home of some of the biggest names in luxury goods, like LVMH and Hermes. And those companies are nervous. China's president has been saying things that luxury goods sellers and their shareholders don't like to hear. What happened uh, in mid-August, when most of the Europeans were uh, on their beach vacations, was that Xi Jinping, the president of China, signaled that China wanted to embark on a period of promoting what he called the common prosperity for all. And this was sort of read as a signal that the authorities are worried about sort of conspicuous consumption and growing inequality in the country. So immediately when that was made public, it was on August 17th, the next morning when the European markets opened, the shares of all the big luxury goods companies dropped precipitously. Now, to be fair, no one really knows what the comments mean, but investors don't like uncertainty. And when China accounts for anywhere, depending on the estimates, between 35 to up to 50% of all the luxury goods sales in the world, now, that market, even a small change in the demand there has a sort of outsized impact on the companies and their, you know, therefore their profitability and their share price. It's Leila Aboud, the FT's Paris correspondent. Emerging markets like Brazil, India, and Turkey once were hot, but over the past decade, investor enthusiasm has cooled off. Returns have been anemic compared to U.S. and European stock markets. Some analysts even call it a lost decade for emerging markets. But the FT's Robin Wigglesworth says investors may have reason to be excited again. Well, one of the reasons why emerging markets started the year well and then dragged again was China. So people were optimistic. Emerging markets finally were going to come through a decade of pain and come to the promised land, as it were. And then China started cracking down on swaths of its economy. It started regulating privacy, digital education, uh, all sorts of areas where there are lots of listed Chinese companies. And people really started to worry and the Chinese market fell dramatically. And China is such a huge part of emerging markets that, you know, anything that happens there quickly echoes throughout the developing world's markets. And that's what we saw this year. Now things are just so cheap, so beaten up compared to pretty much every other major market that people think that finally, finally, there might be a comeback in the offing. So talk to me about some of the bright spots uh, in emerging market stock. What, what are those? Well, the main thing is that these countries are generally growing quicker than the developed world. You know, you don't have to go to a China to see you know, countries that are actually doing pretty well. They also have way better demographics than we have in the West. These are generally speaking young populations as well. Generally speaking, that is also good for equity returns. Uh, they export a lot of commodities, uh, many of these countries, and commodity prices have rebounded strongly after the, the shock caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are a lot of stars aligning in the right way, but we're just kind of waiting for that catalyst, maybe, maybe worries about China to recede a little bit. Uh, and then I think we might be off to the races. Is there anything that could go wrong at this point for emerging market stock? Well, there is one near-term risk, one medium-term risk and a long-term risk. The near-term risk is just that the Chinese crackdown, this is just the beginning, that China really starts regulating swaths of its economy way more heavily and the growth slows there, the equity market tumbles and that will not remain contained in China. The slightly more medium term, the Federal Reserve has talked, hinted a little bit that it will start tapering its asset purchases, all these bonds that it's buying, billions of dollars worth a month. And typically, easy US monetary policy has been good for emerging markets. And if the Fed starts being a little bit less accommodative, 
that could also cause some issues in the developing world's stocks and equity markets. And the longer term risk is this mega trend towards environmental, social and governance investing, ESG. Now, broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say that emerging market companies score really badly on ESG. They tend to be badly governed. They tend to not have independent boards. They tend not to care about some of the social issues we do in some countries in the West. Yeah, and a lot of their biggest exports are oil. Yeah, and many of them are oil and natural resources companies. They they dig stuff out of the ground and sell it. So they score badly on ESG. And if we continue to see you know, hundreds of billions of dollars switching sort of conventional investment mandates to ESG mandates, it might mean that even though emerging markets are cheap today, they could stay cheap for way longer than the optimists expect. And that is, I think, the, the big secular danger in emerging markets at the moment. Robin Wigglesworth is our global finance correspondent. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for having me again. Before we go, a word from Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos. We are the only lab company that is actually really focused on leading with transparency. That was Holmes in a 2015 interview with Forbes. Her company claimed to be developing a technology that could conduct a range of medical tests with just a few drops of blood. Theranos became a stock market darling and rose to a valuation of nearly $9 billion. Until... People found out Holmes allegedly hadn't been transparent. Evidence of fraud mounted, and now Holmes is once again a star, but this time in court. Yesterday began the jury selection for her criminal trial. Holmes is charged with defrauding investors and patients by making false claims about the company's blood tests and financial position. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is regular Biz News co-host David Shapiro. David, great to have you back in SA Shores. I think Peter Drury would say between you and I, this is a nice mix of youth and experience. <laughs> Before we get into anything market-related, you've just come back from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Has life returned to normality there? Or put differently, how is Main Street doing in the States? Doing better than I thought. There was a difference. You know, when I was in Boston, we were in the suburbs. And uh, the, the suburbs are rich. <laughs> you know, when I say rich, when you think of Bostonians in these huge um, mansions, you know, yeah, and, uh, huge Boston mansions with rolling lawns and, and lots of greenery around it. So you get a false sense that everything is great. It's a university city, Boston, and all the kids were returning um, to college. And so there was quite a bit of activity. I loved it. I loved it. It was hot and warm. Then you go to New York, and in New York, the same thing's happening. Everybody's coming back. The tourists weren't there, but what is happening is that um, Broadway's opening soon. This week, Broadway will be opening. And once that starts to open, you start to get the buzz around Times Square again. Even when we were there, there were plenty of people around. But missing with the tourists, the normal tourists that you would see, the Asians, the Europeans, the South Americans, you know, that hang around uh, those, the, the, um, the, you know, those contact points, the south side of Central Park on the carriages and so on. But, Justin, it's, um, there's a slight disconnect. If you want a job, there are plenty of jobs in, in, in New York. That means if you want to be a waiter or you want to do some of the menial jobs, there's plenty. Or be, go to Target, work in a shop and that. So anybody just looking for a job, uh, all over you're seeing signs, help wanted, help wanted and that. So I was impressed. I As we left there, there, was, there, there still was a buzz. And I'm writing an article at the moment. I'm saying, you're not going to kill the city. It's going to take a lot more than a bug to actually kill New York. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's there. America's still very strong. Awesome, David. Sounds like you had a great time, which is good to hear. Um, I've got to tell you one thing, though. Cool. If you oh, are yes. not tech savvy in New York or in America, you're dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you want to get on a plane? If you haven't checked in online or submitted your documents online, you're finished because no one's going to help you. <laughs> and, 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 and you go through a very tough learning curve. Everything you do is online. You only talk to robots. <laughs> so 
I'm saying for, for, for older people, don't attempt to go there. You know, unless unless you take a course in, in how to check in online and how to order this. And e-commerce. Oh, every day I would go down to the entrance hall of our, you know, where we were staying, and they'd, they'd be piled, you know, to the roof. Amazon, fresh, you know, fresh direct, everything. So, but Dave, David, mm. I think that's what we're seeing in the equity markets. Brick and mortar mm. businesses falling by the wayside, and these tech-centric businesses climbing even higher. All the time. It's it's. There's been a big change. You know what I did notice: a huge number of vacancies. Um, a lot of places that I was familiar with uh, are no longer there. Uh, a lot of restaurants have closed and that. But uh, you know, it's a city that's adapting. And and that's it, the whole thing, as you say. It's it's things are adapting, and that's where you have to adapt your whole attitudes and also uh, your way of life. Um, gone with Brook Brothers. Now I would always go to New York to Brooks Brothers and buy the white shirts and buy tires. Forget it, they're gone. You know, no one's doing that. Our dry cleaner downstairs <laughs> who specializes in shirts, you know, because all businessmen would do, uh, would bring their, their their shirts to be ironed and washed. You know, he's his business has fallen by the way. He's spattling because people are at home in a much more casual atmosphere and that. So I, yeah, there was a lot that I picked up and learned. Mm-hmm. Let's quickly turn to the Fed meeting that was mm-hmm. last Friday, David. Yeah. He called it a Goldilocks era for the equities market with such accommodative monetary and fiscal policies. Mm-hmm. All major indices in the U.S. are breaking all-time highs nearly daily. Are you expecting a strong finish to the end of the year? It, it looks that way. I'm not going to fight the market. I've got to be honest. I was a bit concerned because it's hard to read market. You know, you, you're reading so many different signals. But even now, as we're talking, you're finding the market just edging up and, and getting better all the time. All the threats of tapering. I think tapering is taken for granted. It's not going to derail the kind of gains uh, that we are seeing. And I think people are returning to work, you know, the, the holiday season is over. The kids are going back to school. What's also going to happen is those people who stayed at home to look after kids are going to now go and find jobs. So I think we're going to, it, it'll be a decent finish. You know, I don't want to say a strong finish. We can't keep the same momentum up. We can't keep it at the same pace, but at least we're going to finish ahead of where we are at the, at, at the moment. So I was very pleasantly surprised at the way that the market did respond to uh, you know, to Jackson Hole, to Powell's speech at Jackson Hole. On a similar theme, David, you've seen more market crashes than the average analyst. We've yes. been in this bull market for the better part of a decade now. History tells us that this can't continue forever. What are the signposts that one needs to look out for before the market does eventually turn? If we start to run too far ahead of results, when we get into a mad mood, I don't think we're there. You know, we're We're expensive. By, you know, we're by no means cheap. And where we're in the market, and that, that applies to the bond market as well. You know, I was looking at the South African bond market today. I've just been looking at some of the rates. I'm saying, hold on a sec. I like this last year. You know, I love the yields at the top end of the market. But I'm saying, okay, you know, the market's responded. Do we buy at this level? And you've got to be it's it's great if your money's been there, but the fresh money, the new money that's coming in, uh, if it's a first time buy, it's very difficult to advise. You know, you've got to tell people just to take, you know, be careful as well. But Justin, the other thing is I've been surprised at tech. I've been a big tech lover and I haven't sold my tech, but everybody was telling me that tech was too expensive, leave it alone. And yet they're doing brilliant. You know, they continue to do well. They continue to dominate. So, are we going to see a crash? For me, the, you know how the crash is going to come? It's going to come sideways. Just And th- those, those kind of markets are, oh, boy, they dull, where they go nowhere. Up, da- up one day, down the next, up one day, down the next. I think that's going to be the kind of consolidation we, we, we get. Keeping on to the tech theme, Bob van Dyke and co on a spending spree yet again, yeah. mm-hmm. this time investing in an Indian payments business for a casual 70 billion rand. A company mm. of this size would waltz into the JSC top 40. The NASPERS process stable now has close to $50 billion in diversified tech-centric investments mm. outside of Tencent. 
Yeah. Do you have faith that any of these might be the next tech giant of the future, or is that just simply too hard to call? It's it's hard to call. I think someone referred to process as SoftBank, you know, describe, and and I'm not mad about SoftBank because it's all over the place. You 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 can't identify it as being one business. You know, we used to be able to identify process last business being ten cent with a few other things sticking out here and there and that, and and. It's worrying. It's not worrying me, but uh, I can't get a grip on it because it's a little bit here, a little bit there. And and to be honest, I'm not mad about food delivery. I'm not because they, they're not unique. Even like an Uber or a Lyft and everything, there's too much competition. You know, whereas Facebook, Amazon are are, are, are very dominant players. So I don't think or Tencent, Alibaba. You know, these are huge, big. Giants. So I think it's going to be very difficult to find a food delivery service that is great. And even when you look at payment systems, you've got to be very cautious about where you get in. I'm a process NASPES holder because we've been there a long time. But but even Justin, you know, look in their returns. This year hasn't been a great year for them. I, I still think that the 10 cent is going to be what decides their face. But good luck. You know, I'm. Uh, uh, they're trying, but to find another 10 cents is going to be very, very difficult. I guess that leads on to my next question, and I understand it is almost impossible to forecast what the Chinese Communist Party are going to do next, <laughs> but do you still like the names of 10 Cent, Alibaba, and JD.com as investment opportunities? Yeah, I, I've, I've toned down my optimism you know, a little bit, just allowing this period to pass. I still think that the Chinese governments are very proud of the size of these businesses, but they just try to knock the leaders into shape and say, just don't get too capitalistic in your attitudes, your spending habits, and so on. Uh, you know you know what struck me with all of this, though? When I'm in New York, I stay across the road from a university called Forden, and there's also a, a tech college there. And... It was a new intake, and and you know one's got to be very careful how you describe people because of everybody's sensitive to this. So please forgive me, but there were an enormous amount of of uh, call them Asian students that came in. They could have been Taiwanese, they could have been Korean, they could have been Chinese. You know, a whole mix of 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 different and Indians and Indian students. Massive amount coming into the United States. So. You still see, what I'm trying to get at, there still is this desire to be educated in a Western kind of culture. And I still think it's very, very important. And that that gives me some kind of hope, you know, that, okay, they're going to go back with different values and, you know, eventually go back to China or Korea. I'm not, and I'm not criticizing the Koreans in any way, but mainly directing at the, at, at the Chinese it's very hard to get to where Xi wants to get. I think it's going to be very hard to take away the desire to have an LVMH bag, you know, Louis Vuitton <laughs> bag or, or a pair of Nike sneakers or want to play games and so on. So I still see these worlds coming together, but we'll, we just have to get through this for the meantime. On to a different topic from a global tech-centric theme into uh, SA brick and mortar business. Yeah. Hardware and building materials counter cash build released great results yeah. this morning, yeah. benefiting from this DIY tailwind that emerged as a result of the lockdowns and people spending more time at home. They did flag that for the first six weeks of the current financial year, sales were down 10% on the prior mm. period. That's quite significant. Yeah. Do you think this is as a result of the riots and looting that affected many of their stores or as a result of this DIY trend stalling somewhat? I, probably a bit of both. Probably a little bit about, and that's where we come back to the Main Street, Wall Street argument, and that things are tough here. The markets have responded. I was going through markets, and I've been a bit disappointed in the resource shares. You know, they've come back, but I think that was more to do with China and also earlier fears of a slowdown. But retailers, retailers, and banks have been doing okay. But when just when you talk to people on the ground, you know, the people who drive you home from the airport, caught a, caught a taxi or caught a, a, a service and that. Things are rough. And, and when you get down to that level, when I look around here, the, the people who are running restaurants and, 
and running smaller businesses are really finding it tough. So I think it's more of that. And it's, they just haven't got the money. And, and I think that's filtering through. We've gone through this period post last year. You know, we're now June 2021 versus June 2020. So I think it's, I think things are still very, very tough. And you've got to be cautious about where you go to here. The conversations are different. When you're in the States and you talk and you'd love it, you know, you'd love it. I mean, in the sense that everything is forward looking, looking for new ways to do what we've been doing. There's no talking about, oh, um, re- you know, what do we talk about here? Retailers or, or more or less old type economy stocks. No one cares. Everybody's walking around casually in gym clothes and active wear and that. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a center of discussion. Whereas here we say most of our discussion, what's Woolworths doing? What's ShopRite doing? The conversation there is completely different. Very biotech, very meditech. Very, uh, you know, all kinds of tech, green tech, all of those things. And that's the difference that you find. You know, and that's the conversation behind, you want to be David? Mm. Are we 20 years behind in thinking? Is we're, that what you're trying to uh, We're a long way behind, yeah. You know what I mean? We're a long way behind in the way that, that, that we are thinking. I don't, and, and we've got to change it. We can do it. You know, we can change attitudes, but we are so stuck in in the way that we've done things and uh, partly our fault, partly government fault and so on. So, but I think for a young person, you know, to go, to go there, to go to the U S and just sit around and, 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 you know, it's so competitive and it's so active. It pushes you up, you know, you know what I mean? It just pushes you higher to improve the way that you do things. And that, that I found exciting, you know, even at my age, I mean, I had to learn a whole lot of new things, you know, how to look at it. Uh, you've got, you're at the United Airlines counter and there's a whole line behind you and it's, you say, you've got to log in. You say, oh, my God, you know, do I know the numbers? Have I done this? Because the last thing you want are the people behind you say, come on, move on, you know. <laughs> I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News and you've been listening to Sassfin Securities, David Shapira. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. My name is Chris Bateman. I'm a healthcare journalist. My guest is Henry Kruger, the sector head for professional guilds at Solidarity. Henry, we're talking about a very long-standing controversial subject or piece of legislation. It's called the Certificate of Needs. Basically, going to tell doctors when they may practice. So hence the controversy. The Director General of Health or their designate will have to apply his or her mind to a host of requirements before issuing a certificate. But essentially, it's arrogating to the Director General the authority to tell healthcare professionals where and when they can practice. Just introduce to our listeners how you see it. For me, the most simple way to explain it is that there is an existing need for healthcare in certain areas, and maybe there's, there's not a service, a healthcare service in that area. So in South Africa, that's quite prevalent, especially where the state clinics are allocated at, and that would be in townships. Most of these state clinics don't have a visiting doctor to these clinics. About 75% of them do not have doctors that attend to these clinics. And, you know, these are community care clinics, so the community would go to such a clinic expecting to receive healthcare services 
And most of the times, you know, they won't be able to access healthcare services in those areas. This is a problem in South Africa and it's based on uh, racial lines. It's based on uh, provincial lines and even the sort of healthcare facility that you attend to. So there's a, quite a discrepancy between the private sector and the public sector. Right. So in a way, you can say they're trying to bring doctors to the people instead of bringing people to the doctors. And of course, that brings in the whole technology debate. But let's just go back to the legislation itself, because, you know, doctors have been skitsy about this for a very long time. And then it was put on ice for a long time. And you know, when I first reported, I spoke to the DG about it. And then it was revived in the Zuma era. And now it seems that it's fast forwarded to becoming quite a, a present moment reality. Where are we now in, in, the, in the time frame? Under President Zuma, it was actually promulgated. It's Section 36 to Section 40 of the National Health Act that actually regulates the certificate of need. So it was promulgated by the minister. The problem with that process was that the regulations wasn't passed together with the promulgation of, of the legislation. So the state legal advisors actually advised the president to approach the Constitutional Court to stay the implementation of Section 36 to Section 40 of the National Health Act. And that happened. Because otherwise it, it, it would have actually rendered all these practices illegal. Exactly. Because they hadn't actually thought through the timeline in terms of what they need to do. It's quite a, a logistical, call it nightmare, to actually make it happen. So it was quite clumsily introduced. Um, so, you know, he ended up with the president taking his own legislation or his health department's legislation, the Constitutional Court, to try and remedy the fact. What was the outcome and lead us up to now? Yeah, so like I said, uh, the, the implementation was stayed and the Constitutional Court said it was irrational, you know, to, to actually promulgate it without the regulations. So at this stage, the regulations have now been published for public comment and the public um, had time to uh, to comment up until the 15th of August. Now the question is, when is this going to be implemented? And as we read the, the legislation, the Minister of Health can actually promulgate this. Uh, the comments that he has received, uh, he can now work into the regulations. And then actually uh, the legislation says that as soon as that has been published within three months, it will come into power. So at this stage at Solidarity, we um, have consulted with our, our legal advisor and we have drafted a, a letter of demand to actually now stay this implementation. If it's going to be implemented within three months, that's going to push this huge obligation onto healthcare practitioners, as you have mentioned. And all the proof, the burden of proof is going to be on, on them to actually prove that they are to be allowed where they are currently practicing. I remember speaking to the DG at the time in 2014, and this was Precious Matsotso, who's now going to the WHO, and she was saying, no, you know, you can reassure your doctors, your readers of the SAMJ that we talk about a grandfather clause, that we're not going to tell practices that are existing, it's people coming into practices and joining practices who will have this need. This, I mean, everybody has to apply for certificate need. But um, they're going to be more lenient on existing practices. The idea is, I imagine, over time to get a demographic spread of healthcare services so they can meet their constitutional obligation. Yeah, so that's the problem. We can't go according to what the, the interpretation by the Director General is. I also was part of a grouping of, of general practitioners that actually met with Precious Matsotsu, and she was quite accommodating. She spoke to us and we had some, some concerns that were addressed. But this doesn't go into the regulations. At this stage, the regulations doesn't differentiate between an existing practice and a new practice. So even existing practices will have to prove in writing, in duplicate, to the relevant municipality and also the relevant state departments why they ought to be allowed to be practicing where they are practicing. So this is quite concerning. There's no differentiation being made. And like you've said, Ms. Precious Matsotsu has, has moved on. So 
you can't go according to the interpretation. You must look at the letter of the act. What I'm quite interested in is that Debbie Pearman, she was a former legal advisor to the National Minister of Health. She herself has been very critical of it. She said that health services are generally located where there's a strong likelihood of patients finding him, and yet there was no cohesive plan at national level to manage healthcare demand. Instead, a disproportionate emphasis was placed on the proposed CON, a supply-side management tool. She says it's possible to filter patients through primary care using technology, telephone advice, interactive information services, sharing knowledge, community agencies. The location of doctor's practice, particularly those specialists, would always depend on the proximity of technology, whether this was the basics of electricity and running water or a private lab. She says, and I quote, no private provider can logically be expected to set up a practice or a hospital in a place where there is a scarcity of patients and in the absence of other incentives. She says there are less restrictive ways to bring healthcare to rural and underserved geographical areas. That's just you know, an interesting thing coming from, from where it does. Yeah, that's true. If we look at the medical schemes networks, they are completely aligned to medical scheme members. So medical schemes also utilize certain um, organizations and associations to service their members. And when you look at, at that, like I say, that alignment, you know, the doctors are where the members are and they know that they're going to be paid. They, they sign these contracts and, and there's no problem. That's why I actually just focused on the public sector where this is not happening. The clinics do not have doctors because there's, there's serious problems. Doctors do not want to go and practice there. It's not safe. In the first instance, there's no medicines there, so they can't actually treat patients. It's not conducive to, to a good healthcare environment. So that's the problem. And on that point as well, we had a huge health market inquiry and that did an inquiry into to the private sector, medical sector, and nowhere in the recommendations of the health market inquiry report do you read anything about a certificate of need. It, if it was such a, a big issue and if this was the solution, surely the health market inquiry spending all that time and all that money with all those amazing minds that's been applied to the private healthcare sector would come up with the solution being the certificate of need. This a few other solutions. Sure. And I mean, it's not like the, 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 there's an overlap between when the health market inquiry was, was operating and when this, this legislation was being discussed and, and, and uh, put forward. One can, again, horses for courses, but it is a legal instrument widely used throughout the world. And there's a constitutional obligation for progressive access to health care uh, in South Africa. But, you know, in the United States, they've used certificates of need but it's subject to regional framing, properly adapted and tailored. You could ask, why is it in our particular South African context so inappropriate? Yeah, so I've extensively looked at the certificate of need in the, in the United States. They had a similar health market inquiry. Um, I mean, they're 10 years ahead of us. The Competitions Commission actually in the U.S. said, you know, that they believe the certificate of need shouldn't be implemented. We had federal legislation that actually, um, you know, uh, made a certificate of need compulsory. That was also done away with. And immediately after that, 10 states immediately dropped the certificate of need. At this stage, uh, as far as I'm aware, 35 of the states are still implementing certificate of need. What the competitions authority actually found that the three main purposes of the certificate of need was was not served. And, and the first is access to health. It actually restricted the delivery of healthcare because fewer healthcare uh, practitioners and service deliverers actually got into the market. The second one is the cost of, of healthcare. It actually went up uh, a lot. And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, is the quality of healthcare actually dropped. That was the finding in the U.S., and it won't be any different in South Africa. I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and with me today is small and mid-cap analyst Anthony Clark, better known on social media as Small Talk Daily. Anthony, good to catch up. We spoke regarding Curro when they released their financials not so long ago. Same industry, however, Advertech and Stadio are more tertiary education providers. If Advertech is an honor student, Stadio is in first year. Give us some background and context onto the offer, offering that Stadio provides to the market. 
Yeah, hi, Justin. It's good to be here again. And uh, please excuse my very casual nature. Uh, today is reporting season and I am back to back with results. So uh, if, uh, if, you, if you take my casual view, I'll give you some great insight to the education sector. We've had results this morning from uh, Stadio and Abitech. Now, both companies are in the tertiary space, but Abitech has the uh, unique advantage um, of having the schooling side as well. So the three companies listed in the education sector in this country, there's actually four. Um, so the largest is basically Advertech. Then we have Kuro. Then we have Stadio. And then there's a small little company based in the Western Cape called Trematon, which is mainly a, a property company, but has a, a schooling aspect. But uh, for, for the work that I do, the big three, Kuro, Advertech and Stadio, the ones that I look at. Now, it all depends as an investor which segment of the education market you feel that you want to be invested in and you believe has the best traje trajectory going forward. Now, interestingly, because of COVID and everyone working from home and not wanting to travel, we've seen significant growth in online education. And in today's Stardio results, 83% of their learners, they've got approximately 35,000 learners, 83% actually want to study from a remote location. So we've seen in these results, for example, in Stardio, uh, which were up about, um, you know, they were up 41% to 9.7 cents a share, that there'd been a fall in physical contact learning. There'd been a rise of online learning. What does that lead to? It leads to better operating margins because there's less cost. You don't need as many buildings. The teachers can actually stream to a number of, a number of students, not just one class. So the underlying profitability of a business starts to increase because you have less bricks and mortar. We need to pay for wages and electricity and water, rates and taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So in my mind, a tertiary operation uh, is probably the best mechanism going forward if you want broader exposure to private education in this country, purely because bricks and mortar basically cost you money. If you have a school, you've got a playing field, you've got a school hall, you've got lots of teachers, you've got lots of maintenance, and that costs money. Where if you're running a virtual business, you could basically have, you know, to, to use a, a simplistic analogy, a warehouse in Brackenfell, and no one would care. So I think um, of the three stocks, if I had to choose one going forward to be in, I'd probably choose Stadio. And your next question might be, well, what about Advertech? Well, they had fantastic earnings this morning. Interim results were up 37% with HEPs of 54.6 cents a share. Now, the really interesting, interesting thing about Advertech, I had a buy my stock at 9 Rand 73 in mid-July, and I chose it as my number one education stock for two simple reasons. One, tertiary. Tertiary is doing quite well. Again, the offline, the offline uh, scenario I've just mentioned. And secondly, um, their schooling operation has been underperforming for a number of years. And the CEO, Roy Douglas, uh, indicated that he wanted to transform the schooling business, improve the margins, and increased profitability. And this is now the second set of numbers where the Advertech schooling division has broken the mold and has gone from being at the back of the class getting a, a, a D minus. This morning, I gave it a B plus. It's actually performing significantly better. And that's the reason why Advertech this morning is trading at a 52-week high. And Kuro, which had its results a few weeks ago, which were utterly dismal. They were down over 50%, the third successive year of awful results are languishing at the bottom of the class. So there's your one, two, three. Very interesting, Anthony. And that leads on to my next question. A few weeks ago, your, your industry pick was Advertech. Of course, it has gone up significantly. And as a result, you've pivoted to Stadia. But going on to Advertech specifically, it's been a great outperformer over the last few years. What's driven this success? And why haven't PSG-controlled Curra managed to replicate similar success? Um, well... <laughs> It's a, that's a, that's, that could be a long question. I'll try and make it very succinct. Uh, Kuro actually was a, a model very like Avatech. Um, before it unbundled Stadio a few years ago, it had a very nice balance between the schooling side, which consumed huge amounts of cash because schools in the very nature need classrooms. They need rugby fields. They need soccer pitches. They need swimming pools. So they're extremely expensive. So until you fill a school to a certain level of capacity, they actually cost you money. Um, and only it's the, it's the last few children in a class that actually makes all the money. So what Kuro did was they put down a huge number of schools. They built up an enormous amount of debt. 
And because of this constant rollout of schools and the fact that we were filling up, but not filling up as fast as they should, the earnings hit a speed wobble. If they'd have kept Stadio in the entire mix, it would have equalized and basically leveled off a lot of the problems that Kuro has had. But they spun off Stadio as a separate company because Stadio as an online education company is what we call asset light. It doesn't need bricks and mortar. It can do it. It can do most things online. In Advertech, you have the benefit of both aspects. You had a schooling business, which was very, very high end. You had uh, Abbott's College, Trinity House, and, uh, and Crawford's as an example. So when the downturn in the economy actually started to bite really hard a few years ago, you know, and people weren't getting bonuses in the, in the upper echelons of society, um, yes, they will cut back on, on certain things, but they wouldn't really cut back on their children's education. But as the economy got a little bit harder and emigration started to, to bite and fees were looking a little bit expensive, Advertech were losing more children because their price points were just very expensive. So they started what was called the secondary brands of, uh, of Pinnacle and Advertech Academy to try and capture those learners who perhaps were trading down. So, for example, I use a classic example of a, of a Santon mommy who was taking their kids to a, to a Lani school in Santon but couldn't quite afford the, uh, the fees. But there was another school, nearly as good, a, a few kilometers away, owned by the same company with lower fees. You didn't get polo ponies and ballet classes, but you got really good education at a slightly better price point. Advertech now captured that market. And that's one of the reasons why their schooling operation alongside centralized costing and focusing on, on, on margin have done significantly better in the last two to three years compared to Kuro. Because Avatech had the classes, they had the schools, but didn't need to expand. We needed to refine their offering to make it more price competitive. And that's exactly what they did. Whereas Kuro just kept on building and building and building and building, which meant that they always have this increasing cost base and a much bigger debt pile to service. So in Avatech's case, you're now seeing the benefits of a, of a recovering and resurging schooling operation where margins are picking up. Uh, student numbers are picking up and it's balanced by the tertiary side, which has consistently been a solid performer. And again, in these results, they have a small resourcing business, which is basically an employment service, which again has kicked in some nice profits. So all in all, in these Abitech results, you've got a combination of better schooling, uh, uh, tertiary doing quite well, uh, employment staffing kicking up, margin going up and underlying costs going down which led to these great numbers, which is why the market is pushing the price to a 52-week high. Anthony, are you of the opinion that public tertiary education providers, say the UCTs, the Stellenbosch, are they in a steady state of decline? And as a result, Stadia, Advertech offer value from an investment proposition? Well, uh, this, this may be a slightly controversial uh, statement to make, but it's, it's one based on, 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 on knowing the industry. As we know in this country, the historically disadvantaged students never really got access to what we would call the, the premier universities in this country. You know, the, the well-known uh, universities, which we, which we all know, UCT, Stellenbosch, Tux, etc., etc. There's, there's now a greater um, acceptance that, that the, the greater population needs as much access to education as the privileged few many years ago. However... That leads to its own problems. The government only has a finite pool of money. And with an increasing number of students wishing to go to government-run uh, universities, something has to slip. And what is slipping is standards, quality. And the government is trying to do its very best to be very inclusive and give everybody the best possible education. But as we all know in this country, there isn't as much money to go around as there used to be. So what that means is that parents who perhaps want their children to have a better quality tertiary education, now have the option to pay more to get quality either online or contact uh, private education via, let's say, Advertech Damlin College or a, or, a, or, a, or a Rosebank College or in Stardio's case, one of the online courses via AFTA or CA Connect or Southern Business School. At the end of the day, they are targeting a particular niche in the marketplace. Those that want what I would call more professional qualifications for lawyers, um, the accountants, um, they're doing engineering courses, et cetera, et cetera, where perhaps in the state system, um, those, those level of quality um, craft-based 
courses may not be as readily available to everybody. So as I say, you pay your money and you take your choice. If you want to send your child to a state school, fine. Uh, then you accept the may, there may be a slippage in standards. There may be larger classes and uh, you, you muddle on through. Uh, if you want it like smaller bespoke classes with a more tailored approach to what I call education tailored towards the new workplace. But I think there will be a space going forward for private education, which is why Stadio and and, uh, and Avatech are continuing to pick up numbers in their online and tertiary platforms. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to JSC's small and mid-cap analyst, Anthony Clark. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. There are amazing programs and grants in South Africa which have put enterprising young people on the path to invent, grow and thrive. One of them is a social enterprise, the Urban Agricultural Initiative, that an organization called Wouldn't It Be Cool or WIBC operates. Kaya Maloney, an engineering student, keen to invent and start his own business, secured a spot and completed a three-month scholarship with this incubator to grow hops. But this young entrepreneur was thinking big and he started growing four-season hops on a rooftop of Constitutional Hill in Johannesburg, which is a first for South Africa. We've got to ask you, how did this idea start of a hops farm on a rooftop in Johannesburg? So uh, it all started around about a Sunday afternoon, so about 8 p.m. in 2016. And I'm sitting, and everybody's watching, uh, date my family. I'm like, it's entertainment, but for me, it just seemed so mindless at the time. And I was like, uh, they could be plotting murders on, on God Blanche. Let me go see what's happening over there. <laughs> I switch over to Mnet and I see they're covering this documentary about Brooklyn Grange in, in New York. And it was about these young uh, agri-entrepreneurs, guys that were just like planning a whole rooftop gardening site on all dilapidated buildings. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. They were using hydroponics and soil, the moving soil all the way up on top of the bridge, just growing things for the inner city and supplying restaurants and the supermarkets with fresh produce. I was like, this is a genius idea. I did research and I found out that uh, there's an initiative like this by an urban agriculture initiative. It hadn't started. It was the first of its kind in South Africa. They were planning to put a hundred rooftop gardens on top of buildings in inner Johannesburg, inner city Johannesburg, and I thought that was entirely brilliant. Did you have any agricultural background at that stage? None whatsoever. This is someone with a construction engineering background. It was 2011, I think. I was still a student in Cape Town, and I was sitting in a lecture, bored out of my skull. I'm like, is this what I really want, I want to do in the, for the rest of my life? I left at lunchtime, went downtown in Cape Town to go register a company. And I called it Envisioned Digital Agency. Uh, so I started coming up and joining these incubators, these tech incubators, thinking of different ideas. And that's how I've always tried to position the company, being the forefront leader in everything I do. So you wanted to be an entrepreneur. You wanted to use technology. Why hops? Hops is notoriously difficult to grow. When the idea of agriculture came, I'm like, okay, this is the next step in agriculture, rooftop farming in the inner city. And I experimented. So, like I said, I played the devil's advocate. I went to the mineral councils and told them I'm from this hydroponics company with no experience. Nobody in my family even had a farm or anything like that. This was, I didn't know what I was going to grow. I just, I just came up with the idea. So I approached them and they're like, okay, get us a code. I was like, wow, now I need a code. So I Googled, I Googled and I found a hydroponics company in Pretoria. And I went to them and told them I'm from the mineral council. And we looked at four quotes for something like that. So I got a quote from them. Okay, you guys will join me. And I submitted to the Middle Council. Like, it's too expensive, but you can join this incubator. So now in this incubator, it was a bunch of young people that also qualified to be part of the program. We all went through this course. So this course is WIBSI, Wouldn't It Be Cool, W-I-B-C. And what happened there is uh, they teach you basically the business model. One thing you don't know about farming is it has a lot to do with the numbers. It's a numbers game more than it is anything. 
taught us about business models and everything like that. We had to learn in different spheres of farming. And then the last two weeks, they teach you about hydroponic farming. And I was like, okay, this still fits within my idea of having an agri-tech business. From there, everybody were already presenting. They came with an idea in mind. I'm going to grow lettuce. I'm going to grow uh, parsley. I'm going to grow like all sorts of herbs and leafy greens. I was the last one to choose. So one of the classes I attended, uh, they, they mentioned SAB and how they make their beer and all the things that go into it, barley, malt, hop. And I learned that they own about 100% of the hop yards in South Africa, all for only two hectares. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So what do the craft brewers get? And they're like, okay, they buy from SAB. I was like, that's not really a good idea. I came up with this idea of a four-season greenhouse that grows hops to supply to craft brewers. In South Africa, I was like, okay, that's my crop. When everybody's choosing, choosing everything else, I chose a hop. Explain to us, it's a hydroponic farm. You don't use normal rain or everything. You, you pump water into it. So, so that's the great thing about, uh, the, uh, hydroponic hop house. What would it look like? Be this controlled environment agriculture. That's basically what greenhouses are. The controlled environment agriculture. You basically manipulate the plant to thinking the conditions are the same to where it grows natively. Hops are very specific crops and they love specific conditions. Uh, they only grow in the Southern Cape of South Africa. Isn't it around George, isn't it? Yes, they only grow around George because they have about 16 hours of sunlight over there, whereas we have around 14, 12 to 14 hours here in Johannesburg. So I had to get lights and grow lights added to my structure. The magnificent thing about greenhouse agriculture is there's no need for soil. So it has this uh, reservoir tank that it uses. That's about 5,000 liters, 500 to 5,000 liters, depending on the size you require, to run consistent water with a pump inside of it that generates water into a pipe that goes right through the system. Uh, depending on what system you're using, I use a Dutch bucket system. And the water runs through there through a grow media, which is very porous, is made of coconut husks. It's a, it's a medium in which you plant your thing and then they grow and it's nutrient-rich cocoa peat that I use. And the water runs through the pipe from the reservoir right back out. It fertilizes the roots of the plant. It directly dials the nutrients into the rhizome of the plant roots. Seeing that everything in South Africa is centered around SA breweries, where did you find plants? That's an interesting part as well. So through my journey of looking for these seedlings or roots or anything I could use to grow hops, I didn't know. There's this thing called plant breeders' rights. That means the owners of the hops have the pure carte blanche to tell you what to do, where to grow it, and you have to pay them a license fee to grow these things. So the lucky thing, while I was in my experimental phase before I built my original one that's in Constitutional Hill right now, I had to prove that I could grow hops. So I was given an experimental demo site with 10 rows. At the time, the, the program was sponsored by SAB, so they did provide me with cuttings. But once I developed and they moved away from sponsoring the state program, I had to find my own, only to find out that there's a gentleman out in the north of Pretoria he has his low farm and he grows hops. The variety he grows is an Australian hybrid. And then there's also another variety that he has. How's it been going? Have you harvested yet? What have you done so far? I erected a, a 300 square meter greenhouse with all the gadgets and everything, all the environmental control of features that come with it. It had 550 plant sites or buckets because I was growing in a Dutch bucket system. So I harvested twice already, and this was my first winter harvest. Uh, so the concept of a four-season uh, hydroponic greenhouse is something that's never been done before in South Africa. I tested it using my data, reverse engineering, growing, failing. I had harvest, and I transported them and sold them to a brewery down in Paul in, in Cape Town, Soul Barrel Brewery. I actually framed it uh, like such a unique, innovative beer, and I was... That was such a, a reassuring thing after years and years. Uh, 2016 was a long time ago. So to finally have something, your brainchild actually becomes something out of the idea and conceptualization of a, a four-season hydroponic greenhouse in Agritech. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. 
Well, thanks for being with us. From me, Justin Roy Roberts, and the rest of the business team, we hope you have a great day further, and we'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.